Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. They've become the poster boys for slacker irony and the heroes of an indie rock generation. Now Stephen Malcolmus and Pavement are back on tour. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. Stay tuned for our interview with Stephen Malcolmus of Pavement, plus a review of the new album by Montreal's orchestral popsters, The Arcade Fire, today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. is the Dutch DJ Tiesto, who was the headliner at last weekend's Love Parade Festival in Germany. This is a major techno and house festival that has been going on since 1989, but for the first time in its history, a major disaster struck. 20 people killed, more than 500 injured. What happened, apparently way more people showed up for the festival at a railway station in the middle of the German city of Duisburg than ever before. More than a million people supposedly showed up. The festival site can accommodate maybe a couple hundred thousand. So many people showed up that the festival organizers closed down the only entrance gate to the festival. The crowd began to turn back in a sort of a narrow tunnel-like area, and people were crushed in the uh, mass of humanity. German investigators are looking into it. Who is to blame? As of this recording, there have been no indictments or charges handed down, but this is going to be an ongoing investigation without a doubt. This compares to the greatest concert and festival tragedies of all time, Jim. I mean, you think about the 100 people that died at the station nightclub in uh, Rhode Island, that great white concert where the pyrotechnics got out of hand. The E2 nightclub stampede in Chicago in 2003 when 21 people died. The Roskilde Festival, where Pearl Jam headlined in Denmark in 2009. Concert goers were killed then. And then everyone probably remembers the Who at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati in 79, where 11 people were trampled. This is right up there with the worst of them. This is an investigation that we're going to be following for months to come. Greg, the thing is, it's kind of tragic when these promoters do not learn the lessons of history. These events are few and far between, but they should be non-existent by this point because there has been decades of knowledge that have gone in. One thing you shouldn't do is hold a concert or a festival in a place that wasn't designed for it. Yeah. You know, an old railway freight station is not a concert venue or a sporting venue. The other thing is... 
don't close doors. You know, we've seen that happen again and again, where in an effort to control the crowd, promoters limit the egress and ingress to one or two doors in a massive space. It's idiotic. And you may have a harder time keeping a handle on things as a promoter, but you don't block people's way in or out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Love Parade Festival organizers, even though this festival has been going on for years without tragedy, as a result of this disaster, they have declared the Love Parade Festival is over. Greg, you might think you'd have to go to church to hear music like that, nuns doing Gregorian chants. But no, soon enough, it will be available for download to put on your iPod right next to Lady Gaga, whose (laughs) record label, Universal Music, is very excited about a forthcoming release from a group of cloistered nuns in the south of France. This is a very serious order in Avignon that has no contact with the outside world whatsoever. It dates back to the 6th century. These nuns are so serious, there's 28 of them, that one of them is a plumber and another is an engineer, just so they don't even have to have repair people come in ever to the abbey. The other 26 sing, and they sing eight times a day these Gregorian chants, which are believed to be the oldest in the history of music, dating back to the first music ever written down. For some reason, Universal Records in Britain decided they wanted to go shopping for nuns, right? They literally put a ad in several religious publications saying, attention nuns and religious orders, we are offering you a unique new recording project. Now, how the nuns from Avignon got their music to Decca Records and won this contest to get the recording contract, I don't know, because they don't have any contact with the outside world, right? But at some point, the head of Decca winds up going to the nunnery and passing the contract through the grill. They wouldn't even come out to sign the contract, right? You, You might think that's the silliest thing you've ever heard. But there have been a couple of examples of huge, unlikely religious hits in the past. In 94, that record chant, Benedictine monks of Santo Domingo doing Gregorian chants, it had been recorded in 73, but it was reissued and became this huge hit. Even before that, in 1963, there was the singing nun. Remember remember her? My parents had that record. They used to play it in Catholic school yeah. all the time. Dominique was her big hit. She was a Belgian nun, better known as the singing nun, and recorded this song, Dominique, which was actually about the founder of her order. And it was number one on the pop charts and the easy listening charts for weeks and weeks in 1963. So stranger things have happened, but I personally want to see the nuns leave the abbey just for a couple of weeks, do a world tour with Gaga. I think that would be the <laughs> ultimate. Ladies and gentlemen, the grateful pavement. Blinded with the chancer, we had oysters and draw lancers. The check went in a rock. We went Dutch, 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 Dutch. Red a shaded net on the wider shade of trash. Every board is given Steve a rash I'm flat out You're so beautiful To look at when you cry freeze Your 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Pavement, live at the 2010 Pitchfork Music Festival. This performance was part of the influential indie rocker's first tour in a decade. Pavement formed in Stockton, California, and was primarily a studio project early on, led by singer and songwriter Stephen Malcolmus and guitarist-vocalist Scott Spiral Stairs Canberg. Along with drummer Gary Young, they released a couple of EPs and the highly acclaimed 1992 album Slanted and Enchanted. Malcolmus's love of lo-fi bands like The Swell Maps and Chrome influenced his own songwriting, and four albums later they established themselves at the forefront of the underground rock movement of the last couple of decades. The band broke up after 99's Terror Twilight, but ten years later they've reunited. We recently spoke with frontman Stephen Malcolmus about the band's history and asked him how it felt to be back in front of such a large and adoring audience. Don't stare. It was great, but you know, it's you, a festival like that where we were kind of a featured group, and uh, you don't want to feel completely entitled to just be like, this is our audience, you know, because people came to see all these different bands, so it was it was hard for me to feel exactly at home when we were playing, other than just to let play songs, and it was still, when I got up there initially, I was pretty psyched you know, to just see all those people there and the weather was cooling down. And Well, it's, it, it's, it's quite a story because, you know, here Pavement is back bigger than ever in a lot of ways, playing to huge audiences now. Your place in rock history seems to have, you know, just only gotten bigger. Steve, let's take it right back to the beginning. I think a lot of people know the Pavement story once you guys started recording. But, you know, what I really want to know is what got you excited about music? What made you want to pick up a guitar before you even started Pavement? Well, going way back, there was just some luck that I had an acoustic guitar lying around from my grandmother bought me like a soft string guitar. And I suppose I was into just, I don't know, adolescent major label music that was pushed towards me in the late 70s, like Van Halen and Devo and Credence. And I think Devo maybe and Kiss, these kind of bands that really had this comic book element to them. First, I got into that and moving on to high school and getting more defining yourself, who you who you are, the local punk rock scenes of California. And then really like maybe the Dead Kennedys were the first band that kind of really broke through and became like I was sort of really into them. And mm -hmm. then there were local bands in my town that were starting to play. And that's how I got in a band. I started playing bass in a punk band, and and then I got a little beyond playing bar chords. I learned uh, Purple Haze, <laughs> and then I started writing my own songs in the punk time because it was just kind of not difficult to just write something sarcastic and <laughs> and uh, four chords. You know, I'm giving you the long story. Going on to uh, co college and college radio and the extension of the punk rock local shows which was bands like i guess sonic youth and homestead records and the replacements and you know college bar bands mm -hmm. so we rock critics like to to wax hyperbolic sometimes you know people talk about mm -hmm. chuck berry and the electric guitar changed everything right then Kraftwerk finds the moog changes yeah. everything and for a certain generation you discover this four-track cassette recorder and start this revolution, really. This, you know, How much of that was just, here's a nifty new toy, let me and Scott Kenberg, who started the band with you, play around with it, and how much of it was like, this is the birth of the lo-fi movement, <laughs> yeah. right? 
Well, there was a noise element and a lo-fi. Maybe we were into groups like the Swell Maps. trying to be extra cool at the start through insecurity mm -hmm. so we were picking like really obscure things to reference with the goal of making an obscure record that would be a kind of a DIY punk thing that you would discover 10 years later and the secret handshake college radio would play <laughs> yeah. it later and say like that was weird who was that and but as we got taking baby steps towards people actually liking it, which surprised us, and I don't think I was aware of... Uh, I knew about fanzine culture, a thing that is kind of mutated into Pitchfork and uh, blogs, but people like Gerard Hazelay with his fanzine and Forced Exposure, we would want those people to like what we did. That would be our audience, probably, that we'd be happy if they, in their very snotty, holier-than-thou way, had liked said that we were okay, we would have been happy. It sounds like you're almost poking fun at yourself. <laughs> well, like, yeah, we were young and just, there wasn't that much ventured on those records emotionally, you know, it was just kind of cool, which is not bad. So after a few more cryptic singles, we started to open up a little bit and, you know, actually make some songs that were longer and that was Slant and Enchanted. It yeah. Was still, it wasn't, Lo-Fi was not really a, you know, it was supposed to be trashy, but hard to believe those were recorded on 16-track. We just didn't know what we were doing. And, uh, <laughs> it was basically you and Scott, right, recording those And the those drummer, records. Gary. Yeah, there was nobody else there mm -hmm. to say what was right. But for some reason in his studio, things sounded kind of good for what they sound like. So you're saying the lo-fi thing was maybe a little camouflage for the insecurities of you as a songwriter and a camouflage singer at that and, time? Camouflage and luck, I mean. Yeah. But we were also into that texture, I think, and just we did think bands like Chrome and Swell Maps were really fun, fun groups and ones we would want to be aligned with rather than some other bands that I might have liked, like the replacements that were big and, and bright or REM. You know, we didn't really want to sound like that at that time either. That's magician, he still knows the tricks. We had a string of EPs come out, Slandin' Enchanted, circa 92, 93. It, it becomes a real band at that point. What was that transition like, taking these songs that you had sort of created and, and created an entire atmosphere, almost like built your own little world there in the studio, that, that sound, there was a mystery to it. 
and you guys go out well, and play Especially shows. because, you know, Slanted and Enchanted was traded as a cassette yeah. for months and months, yeah, almost I, a year before it actually came out. Yeah, it created quite a, like a version of a uh, internet blog sensation before there was that. But we, so we got that, and all of a sudden we had this endorsement from so many places. So yeah, it was kind of, I had to uh, decide to pull a band together to tour because that would make it reify it. And uh, that was really nerve wracking because we'd never played live. I'd played punk shows back in, in the day, but that was just 20 minutes and you were off and couldn't really remember. <laughs> so we just drank a lot and fought our way through it. It's real shambolic. What, what Was it really just a casual thing, though, Stephen, or was it, you know, because postmodern was the word everybody started mm. throwing around. Is right. this like the postmodern rock band? Like, what are you yeah. doing? That was what everybody was asking. You know, there was always from the insecurity and also kind of liking sort of those early replacement shows where they would end up with their heads in the um, kick drum or something yeah. playing a <laughs> yeah. Hank Williams song or something. And thinking like that was kind of cool, which I don't really now as I grow older. But at that time, I think we were just just drink a lot and be a mess and, uh, you know, have it hold together with good songs would be nice if that happened too. Well, when, when does the light bulb go on? I mean, you play Summer Babe for Scott. I mean, there's got to be like a feeling in the room like, well, this this one's pretty good. Yeah, not to me that one. I was like, it's just a riff over and over again. But like Gary made it good with his drum part and then I played some good guitar, but not that one. I didn't think that was a particularly interesting song. Ice, baby. I saw your girlfriend and she's eating the fingers just another meal, but she waits there in the levee washes, mixing cocktails with a plastic fixer. All right, when did you write something that you said, huh? Okay. I think it was more just an accumulation on Slant and Enchanted. I just thought it, I kind of had a feeling, and other friends told me they're like, "This is like a real album, and there's not much. It's just kind of a dead zone right now, um, in relation to the other things that were going on in our minds." It was more like what other people said that made me feel sort of com- more confident about it. And when people would show interest, other People like Sonic Youth or something would ask us to tour them or something like, wow, you know, like I never thought that would happen. Can you treat it like an oil well? When it's underground, out of sight. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ and PRX, we'll have more with pavement frontman Stephen Malkmus. Then Jim and I are going to review the new album by Montreal indie rockers The Arcade Fire, and I'll drop a quarter into the Desert Island Jukebox. We'll put our labels down, pages down. I'll watch them yarn and twine on And you never get it back. It's what I want. It's what I want. It's what I want.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and the song you're hearing is called Here from Pavement's 1992 debut, Slanted and Enchanted. That record went on to have a huge influence in the underground rock world, and we got a chance to speak with Pavement singer Stephen Malcolmus when he played a reunion show at this year's Pitchfork Music Festival. And during our conversation, I asked Stephen about the band's reputation for being icons of slacker irony. It's been our last Steve, I want to get back to two words that get thrown around a lot with you guys, especially in those early days. Irony and slacker. How do you reconcile that with uh, a song like Here, you know, to, which mm. to me was really poignant. You yeah. know, you played it last night, just a really great song, but kind of more of a sad, melancholy kind of song. Where were mm-hmm. you coming from as a songwriter from that standpoint? And do you sort of understand or embrace that term, you know, the postmodern thing, the irony thing? Was, yeah. it, was that part of the way you were looking at it, too? Well... I think that there was some awareness or self-awareness in everything we did, if that's irony. But really, looking back on it, whatever we did, that we just worked on these things for one week, and the whole record was done. There's kind of it's hard to be ironic in one week, you know. Like <laughs> if you mix something, play it and mix it in seven days, it's not really that ironic. That comes after the fact, maybe with some of the imagery on the album covers mm-hmm. and the shows were slack in a way because we couldn't play that well and and we didn't make a huge effort to practice or anything uh, mm-hmm. and we didn't have the band that could play the songs really the songs were mainly me and gary playing everything so it's hard to replicate that too well ne- nevertheless though you found yourself with a career you know here you are 25 years later you know and you're recording as a solo artist, you were supposed to be a history professor, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. It just, it's strange for sure to be imagining that music would go this long looking at my pedigree. And, but I think the heart, the punk rock really is the bottom for me. That was anyone can do it. The first time seeing like DOA and the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag, that's where I come from. So younger people today, maybe they saw Pavement or you know whatever mm. the 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 times times change so much there's such a touring phalanx of small clubs for bands to play in now that didn't exist back in the 80s we're talking with uh, Stephen Malcolmus of Pavement on Sound Opinions Steve there was i think people read a lot into your band i think you're an iconic band for a lot of reasons you know the songs the music but also the way you conducted your interaction with this industry mm-hmm. you, you mentioned you and gary had gary young had this very close relationship in terms of just making the music you recorded a lot of stuff in his studio early on then he left the band yeah tell me about the sort of the state of the band there because it did seem like it started to evolve into as you said it was very shambolic and very kind of almost chaotic on stage did you feel yourself moving into like okay we need to present these songs in a more intelligible manner <laughs> at some point first of all like i was real confident back then I had a lot of ego which is not a bad thing for a leader I I remember just saying we should do something different because we can we don't have to be 
a lo-fi band. That was a constricting adjective anyway. I also always kind of liked classic rock, and no one had really, except Dinosaur kind of had done it, but more in an over-guitar way. No one had thought of the sort of 70s sound of those albums. So I thought for Crooked Rain, which is the next one, and just kind of make it real fat and analog sounding and bigger drums and bass. Darling, don't you go and cut your hair. Do you think it's gonna make him change? I'm just a boy with a new haircut and that's a pretty nice haircut. Charge it like a puzzle, hit me wearing muscles. Hesitate to dive, look around, around. The second drummer drowned, this telephone is found. We just started recording in a really bad, mediocre studio, but it had good gear. So it wasn't mediocre, actually. It was just stripped down, not like a fancy place where you feel the aura of Jimi Hendrix or something <laughs> that, you know, Electric Ladyland. It was just a little room. But we mm-hmm. mixed it with a real talented guy for the first time. Someone else mixed it with us named Bryce Goggin. When we got there, he just took control, and it sounded 90% better than it ever would have. And so then it started to come together with songs. There was reverb and range life and songs like that that were real smooth and big sounding. I was happy to kind of like go in the face of the, you know, lo-fi, try to find the song. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like kind of a, to us, it was a 180 degree turn. After the glow, the scene, the stage, the set of talk becomes slow, but there's one thing I'll never forget. Hey, you gotta pay your dues before you pay the rent. Over the turnstiles and out in the traffic, there's ways of living, it's the way I'm living, right or wrong, it's all that I can. There's some guys in that era famous for playing every instrument on the record, you know, kind of mm. the dictator approach. Yeah. What were the actuality of the pavement records at that period? Was everybody playing what they Not yet. their instrument? Crooked Rain and Wowie Zowie, that was not to like take a lot of credit, but I played almost everything on them. But there are key part not drums. Mm-hmm. The drums, only drums a couple times. And Scott would add really key elements and play on his songs. Like he would add nice textures. Well, I'm drowning for your thirst. then it changes for the uh, the final records? The final two, yeah. We started to rehearse more. And, well, maybe not Terror not ter- Twilight. Everyone plays on that. Yeah, we, we tried to, especially on uh, Bright in the Corners, to present more of a group sound. Everyone was getting more confidence.
But I was overjoyed with the results of that, the way it came out, mainly because of the mixing of Bryce. And Bryce has gone on to he worked with Fish and mm-hmm. did an Evan Dando record. And that's that's a couple. You need a couple lucky things along the way where you just bump into people. Mm-hmm. And Pavements had those with Gary and Bryce. And then the last two records are, are Mitch Easter and Nigel Godrich. Yeah, um, they were great too. Mitch, what a guy. Kind of underrated and a name we haven't yeah. seen a lot mm. in, in the last decade and a half. Although, you know, if it had not been for those REM records that he produced, arguably the indie rock of the 80s would have never happened. It was such an, I agree. an influence. And Godrich, of course, going on to you know, yeah. work with Beck and Radiohead, rule the world. Yeah, they're two different things. I mean, Mitch was, uh, Bryce came down too for that and um, engineered with Mitch in his studio. Mitch is just, he had it in his house. It was in a southern mansion. He had kind of wired the house to be a studio. It turned out he was a super big fan of all music, you know. I really liked him. And uh, he has a good idea about sound. Nigel Godrich is a totally different thing. I mean, he's a kind of a prodigy. You know, he's kind of the guy that gets your, the sound comes out of the, the speakers and you, you know, it's, you were like, that was me. That's what my crappy amp sounded like, really. That's what the Tom York, York, not to drop names or something, he's like, I was like, why don't you do an album without Nigel just for once, you know, just see what happens. He's like, well, you know, sorry, Nigel, that I said that, you know, it's like, why not? He's like, but you know, you just play like the worst thing and it comes out and he makes it sound amazing. Mm. He also has a very set way that he works. It's old school. So it's like you had to step up your game. Yeah, it was. He doesn't, he wasn't into autotune and stuff, which is great. There would be a lot of like, could you sing that again? <laughs> that was almost in tune. Yeah. Like I wouldn't really yeah. notice, you know. I'd be like, that's in tune by my standards. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You went into that period with these two producers. Wowie Zowie was. Uh, a lot of people saw that as almost like a jigsaw puzzle. That record, a lot of different things going on in that. Cryptic in some ways. Maybe mm-hmm. your most cryptic record. And then you go from that to recording with Mitch, Bright in the Corners, which is almost like a classic, you know, it could have been played almost in any era. You got songs on there like Shady Lane and, and yeah. stuff that were just could have been. It could have been, I know. Blind it with the chancer, we had oysters and dry lancers, and the check when it arrived, we went touch, 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 touch. A redder shade of neck on a whiter shade of trash, and this emery boy. 
was your mindset sort of consciously saying, okay, we want to make something a little bit more accessible and, well, and bigger? After Wowie Zowie, which I was really proud of, and I thought it was really good Like when I finished it. And then it, people didn't really like it very much, like on the critical side. A lot of my friends did, so that was enough. It was kind of a s- sales disappointment and normal stuff that bands go through, like Rush did for Crest of Steel <laughs> or something. But instead of going farther like Rush, they went farther. We pulled back and did uh, right in the corners, but mm-hmm. um, we didn't follow our instincts. Or like ACDC with Black and Black when the, the company wanted them to make the cover pink or something because that would sell more. And they were like, no, it's got to be black. <laughs> On black. Yeah. We stuck to our guns, and now it's the biggest selling album ever. Mm-hmm. I wanted something more concise and like lyrics and and on the cover and I think Scott likes that more too you know he does have an influence on what was what pavement meant and you know he's like let's rein it in Rotten device I'll say it twice I'm too much I'm too much comforted here So, so Terror Twilight 99 ends up being the last yeah. pavement record with Nigel Godrich. Did you know that going in, that that was probably going to be the last one, or how did that work mm, out? As it went on, I guess so. But it was a little bit drawn out because we tried to record it once at a different studio, and Nigel didn't like it. And then we started recording it. It sounded good, but then it just kind of got bogged down. We did the tour. I guess during the tour, more after that, it just seemed... There's not much farther to go. The main problem for me was maybe doing, when I think back about it, was when we did the one before that, uh, Bright in the Corners, we did like these press tours in Europe. There was a big effort by Domino, our label there, to break the band. And I went over and I talked to like every single person in every little interview. And there's this band Blur was really successful then. I'd have to talk about them all the time. And I don't know, I just got burned out real bad, more by the press. <laughs> and doing it for 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like I didn't do press for Wowie Zowie and Crooked Rain and just the treadmill side of it, I was burned out on it. I couldn't really talk about it. And then it combined that with having to do those old songs again for whatever next records just seemed too much. And the creative kind of stagnation, that too. But, you know, it's all kind of cumulative after 10 years. That's why bands don't keep going. These handcuffs were uh, found in uh, our room. They were presented to us by our hotel uh, concierge. They mean a lot to me. They symbolize what it's like to be in a band. Well, there's this uh, infamous thing that's covered on the DVD of uh, you hanging the handcuffs on the microphone stand on the last show and saying, this (laughs) is what being in a band's been like for me. Yeah, well, that was silly. Those handcuffs have a whole different story than what they came from. They came from a hotel room of a band member and his girlfriend. Um, When we came down the night before that show, we were checking out of the hotel room. The concierge said, like, sir, you left your your handcuffs these are, are these yours they're like little fluffy ones you know and it was a n- kind of new girlfriend 
of his, but he said, they're not mine. I, you know, I don't know. They were, <laughs> they must've been in the room. And I was like, Oh really? I'm, so I got them. And then like the whole day I was just like spinning them around. I'm like, that's so weird that they were in your guy's room. You know, they, they weren't yours, but that's What's cool. The chance so I, of that, huh? Yeah. I was just like, yeah, that's, these are kind of cool. I'm just going to keep them around. So I was just like, I just look them and just like play with them. And then I don't know. For some reason, I said that on the just being British. That just deflates that whole story, though, yeah. doesn't it? I was being British dramatic at the sh- at the show. But so then, how do how do things come back together? It was always going to be a t- well. Botch. It happened last year when uh, the Jicks played in this festival in Milwaukee, Fourth of July. Botch, who you might know, he was our booking agent from the start, and uh, he has been every year for the last three years he's asked me not saying much more than that and I was like nah not right now and then that time you know it started to seem like it was a good time because it's been 10 years and I wasn't doing too much actually making a new album but I didn't know that at the time but it seemed to work with my schedule and other people's there's a right time to do do these things you know if you I think seems like our fans are at a, a decent age still that they still want to go out and there's young young fans too mm-hmm. so um we can still jump around and play loud music and it doesn't look kind of weird well everyone's entitled to the, to the one victory lap you know i think yeah. even as critics we kind of say hey you know yeah. yeah 10 years later you want to come back and play the catalog and maybe play to a bigger audience that hasn't i agree there. and people normally like it mm-hmm. i mean it's no it's normally not bad the Eagles or something, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- then, that went know, on and well, on and yeah, on and on and on and on. The Pixies you know? are That's in where year five now, you know, and they haven't <laughs> yeah. written a new song. And you're going to say, how long is this reunion? Yeah. If, when the reunion becomes half as long as the first yeah. career, it's when you start yeah. to have some trouble. Yeah, yeah. Steve, that's when we're going to start to really give you crap is when you come back yeah. through town the third and fifth we times with the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can already, you know, yeah. I can say it now. We're doing this just. Maybe in 10 years again, we might or something. Of course, there is the Paul Allen offers you like a million dollars to play on a private yacht or something. And then you you say, well, my principles have gone out the window for my children and their future <laughs> yeah. or something. But no, we're just doing this one year. We, we dedicated just to keep our energy fresh and just play and have a uh, a finish line. For me, that's a nice thing with the older band and it kind of keeps it in a a nice bubble of uh these are special shows you know if you're paying to go see this you are gonna you're coming to see your songs this you don't don't worry we're not gonna come back and and play for 25 dollars somewhere else or you know like i don't we're just doing this once and and having fun with it i heard what you said Stephen Malcolmus, we appreciate you coming on Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. To see video from our session with Stephen Malcolmus, visit soundopinions.org. And to share your sound opinions on the air, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. You can also email, interact at soundopinions.org, or contact us on Facebook and Twitter. Up next, Greg and I will give our review of the new album from the Arcade Fire. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Ha, ha, 
Sound Opinions, that is a song called The Suburbs, which happens to be the title track of the third album by Arcade Fire. The band is a orchestral pop collective from Montreal, Greg, as we well know, but it is led by a Texan, Wynn Butler, who's in the group with his brother, as well as his wife, Regine Chassain. It's interesting, this band probably is the single most successful group to emerge from the independent rock world really in the last two or three decades. I think you'd have to go back to something like R.E.M. to see a group achieving this level of success from coming from very small independent labels. Funeral in 2004, the much acclaimed debut. 2007's Neon Bible was just as popular. Now it comes time for album number three. The Suburbs is the name and the theme of this record. Although Wynn Butler, to some extent, likes to portray himself as a backwoods, mysterious preacher man from rural Texas, in fact, he and his brother grew up in a planned community mm-hmm. called the Woodlands, which was 28 miles north of downtown Houston, infamous for one of the biggest shopping malls in America, seven golf courses, and more corporate campuses than any other <laughs> suburban community in America. He is singing about that landscape on this record. How does that measure up to the theme of religion? which was the last record, or the theme of death and loss, which was funeral. Well, we'll give our opinions in a minute. Here is a track. It's called Modern Man by Arcade Fire from the suburbs on Sound Opinions. So You're right. 
That is the Arcade Fire with a song from the suburbs called Modern Man, their third studio record. Jim, as you mentioned, it uh, very much it reflects on where Wynn and Will Butler grew up, the sprawling burbs outside of Houston. And it's very much a concept record. It's designed to be heard as a unit. Sixteen songs meant to be heard together. There's sometimes little couplets of songs within the album that mm-hmm. talk to each other. There's recurring characters and images throughout each of these songs. Hugely ambitious record. One of the reasons the Arcade Fire has been so acclaimed is I think they have reclaimed some of that ambition that they feel that maybe indie rock has lost in the last 10 years and brought it back into that language. Whereas the first record, Funeral, was anthemic, an album about a community, and Neon Bible was heavy and claustrophobic and looking out at institutions like government and religion and and really coming back with a pretty bleak report on that. This album is much more spacious and atmospheric and open and wistful and melancholy. I think you can hear it, especially in the song The Suburbs, that track that we played at the top of the segment. They've never had a lighter touch, it seems to me, than on that song. It's one of the best things they've ever done. And the album does open up in that way, where they are reflecting back on their childhood. They're reflecting back on how they grew up in an essentially rootless community. Where is this community? Who lives in it? And where am I now? How have I emerged from all of this? The theme in Modern Man is, you know, I've just become this number. I'm in line for a number. I think it very much speaks to a particular generation that grew up in a particular way. In that way, it's a very moving record. The one fault I have with it, it's a little bit long. Some of the stuff near the end gets a little samey sounding. They kind of are more, as I said, more atmospheric and ballady as opposed to rocking. But overall, I think this thing really works. I love the ambition of it. I'd say buy it. Well, I agree with you. It is a buy it record, Greg. I loved the roiling rhythms of those first two Arcade Fire records. It was all about the way three or four or five of them would start banging on percussive instruments on Mm -hmm. stage. And it was anthemic. And, you know, a lot of people have been saying this is like the indie rock Springsteen or U2. They ratchet that way down on this record, and that's all a good thing for me. I think your reading of it is is like a lot of critics are saying, you know, this is like the rock and roll equivalent of American Beauty or Revolutionary Road, those melancholy odes to the suburbs. I think that Arcade Fire are not hipsters. They're hippies. The key line for me comes when Wynn Butler is is thinking, I would love to have a daughter soon so that I could show her all this beauty before the damage is done. They're talking about, you know, sprawl, which is a word that comes up again and again and again on this record, taking over what's left of wilderness in America. But Butler owns up to his contradictions. In that song, Modern Man, he says, I'm like a skipping record, yeah. you know. And, and part of him hates the suburban sprawl and part of him loves it because that's where he grew up. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, you know, you can't be a guy in a band if you don't go to Guitar Center in the suburbs sometimes <laughs> and buy the four track that got you started. Definitely a double buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. From time to time here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play you a song that we can't live without today. Greg, what do you got for us? Jim, uh, the reason I'm playing the next track for the Desert Island Jukebox is for a couple of reasons. One, it features a vocalist by the name of Gary Scheider, 
who died recently. He was one of the leading members of that ensemble Parliament Funkadelic mm. that uh, George Clinton started in the late 60s out of a barber shop in Plainfield, New Jersey. And as a teenager, Gary Scheider used to go to that barber shop and lo and behold, found himself as a vocalist in George Clinton's band, his circus, as it were. Gary is also well known as Diaper Man. He would appear <laughs> dressed only as a, in a diaper sometimes yep, during yep, yep. Uh, P-Funk shows. The other reason I'm playing it is that this song was sampled by a record that I really, really love, the debut album by Sleigh Bells uh, on the song Real Real. They sampled this particular riff. I'm going to go back and play the original. It appears on the Funkadelic 1971 album Maggot Brain. Recall that Clinton had two major projects. He had Parliament on one side and Funkadelic on the other. Parliament was reserved for the more conceptual the sci-fi imagery, you know, the, the, the chocolate funk invading the suburbs. With Funkadelic, it was just pure nasty, gritty funk. He really brought the more elemental side of his persona into play. And on Maggot Brain, I think that the title of that album perfectly sums it up. I, I really don't want to know anybody in my life who doesn't <laughs> love Maggot Brain. Indeed, it's a great record, and it is really diverse. The 10-minute title song opens it up. It rips your head open with that amazing Eddie Hazel psychedelic guitar solo. And then it follows with this song, Can You Get to That?, which is basically a combination of doo-wop and gospel music, folk rock. You know, there were some Beatles in the air. They basically reference a John Lennon lyric from Norwegian Wood as the first line of this song. And they're talking about the karma. Can you get to that? Can you get to that moment where the karma is good, where you're living the truly enlightened life? So it was very much in keeping with the time, and yet a timeless melody, one so good that decades later, one of the hippest groups in New York, the Sleigh Bells, picks it up and, and uses it as a foundation for one of their songs. So here it is, Can You Get to That? from Funkadelic with Gary Scheider on lead vocals on Sound Opinions. by the immortal Funkadelic, one of your finest picks on the Desert Island Jukebox in a long time, Mr. <laughs> Cott. What do we have uh, next week on the show? Well, thank you, Jim. Next week we talk about the foundation of the blues and the history of chess records. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our new intern is Julia Mullen-Gordon, and our producers are Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana, all three big fans of The Singing Nun, while our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, let me tell you this. I heard he was a member of the Benedictine Monks of Santo Domingo <laughs> until he got defrocked. Can you get to 
wanna know. I wanna know if you can get to that. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, this is John from Huntington, West Virginia. I was just listening to your show on uh, off-the-rails artists. The three that come to mind most for me are definitely Stevie Wonder, Prince, and Neil Diamond. I love Neil Diamond, 60 stuff, one of the best pop singers in that era. And then, oh, I just I can't imagine listening to anything he's done in the last 30 years. But I, I think the, the culmination of it all would have to be Stevie Wonder playing harmonica on Rod Stewart's most recent album, Soul Book, doing My Sharia More. Just a horrible, horrible collaboration. This is Kate Richardson from uh, Mount Vernon, Ohio. I was just calling about your Off the Rails episode, which was a great show. I just wanted to let you know that I knew that Rod Stewart went off the rails when um, I was visiting with my parents, my over 60-year-old parents, and they absolutely love, love, love those new Rod Stewart albums of him singing standard classics. So that's when I knew he was completely off the rails. Thanks, you guys are doing a great job. Hey guys, this is Steve from Chicago. I was just listening to your Jump the Shark episode, and uh, you beat up on Rod Stewart pretty bad, and justifiably so, but I think you left out the 900-pound gorilla in the room, Paul McCartney. After the Beatles, what happened to him? Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. And what's wrong with that? I'd like to know. Cause here I go. Again. You can name one song that didn't a substantial quantity of suck after the Beatles, I'll donate 10 bucks to your favorite charity. I'll donate 100 bucks to your favorite charity because you're not going to find one. Anyway, thanks a lot. Love the show. Take care. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Dave from Darien, Connecticut. Just heard your episode about those whose careers went off the rails. And when you first mentioned Rod Stewart, you gave me another idea, somebody who I thought for sure you were going to mention, and that's Elton John. Unless we forget, he used to be played on progressive album rock stations, with albums like Rock of the Westies, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. And he had some really good progressive chops. Somewhere after Captain Fantastic, he sold out. What a schmaltz icon he's become. Thanks very much. And can we 
From your nightmare, baby. I forgot to tell you about one of the albums that I think is just our worst album. Saint Anger, terrible. It makes me want to puke all over myself. Yeah! Saint To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.